these passages of scripture on slides that I could project for you to read. But uh, due to the fact that I haven't used my photographic equipment for about uh, three years, uh, the results were very sad. So uh, instead of having these um, in the form of slides, I typed them up and had uh, these copies printed so that you can follow the passages that uh, we wish to refer to. Uh, also by way of explanation, uh, this is not my favorite kind of lecture by any manner of means. I really prefer to uh, give what we might call exhortational material. But it was deemed important by a couple of brethren who are members of our Continental Reunion Committee uh, that it would be advisable for us to consider what we're going to talk about tonight. What this amounts to is a report an informational lecture because I know some of you have wondered what in the world the unamended Continental Reunion Committee has been doing all this time. Has it been sitting on its hands? And the answer is no. For example, there is at least an aggregated total of two years of my life that has gone into this effort. And the reasons that we have not issued reports in the past, uh, that is within the recent past, because we have issued about three reports in years gone by, is that uh, there have been some attempts on the part of certain people to uh, make a final try to see if by any means a, an honorable reunion among the two bodies of Christadelphians on this continent could be effected. So, um, you will not find this lecture very inspiring at all, but I trust that you will be able to follow along with me. Also, since uh, in order for you to have the benefit of the scripture references, I'm going to have to follow quite closely to a prepared text, otherwise we would get out of phase as far as the references are concerned. Now there are two reasons why uh, this kind of a lecture is considered important. The most important reason is that in these days of confusion in which we are living and in these days of uh, free expression we are hearing all kinds of views and approaches to the scriptures at least the truth taught in the scriptures and I am quite well convinced that in the minds of some of us we may be becoming rather confused and fuzzy as to just what we as unamended Christadelphians believe. Then also the other reason for its importance I've already touched upon, namely to 
uh, tried to explain to you in as simple words as I can use uh, just what the problems are, the situation that your committee has faced. I know that what I say will generate a number of questions in your minds. Uh, I beg of you not to fire your questions off during the presentation, but after the evening session is over, I'm willing to stand up here and uh, try to answer any questions on the part of people who might be interested in learning more about what has been going on. So, excuse me, with this uh, brief introduction, I want to describe a little bit about the nature of the work that we have been trying to do. As you know, uh, there, and as I mentioned earlier, there are two principal bodies of Christadelphians on the North American continent. There are others besides, but they represent small groups. Perhaps the best known of them is, are the Berean Christadelphians. And the two groups are referred to respectively as unamended and amended. Why such a, termina uh, a determination is because there are two variations of the statement of faith which are in use. We are called, that is, our group are called unamended because we subscribe to the Birmingham unamended statement of faith. The others are called amended because they subscribe to the Birmingham amended statement of faith. The, both uh, all Christadelphians used the same statement of faith for several decades. But toward the end of the previous century, certain people decided that uh, the statement of faith that had been in use did not accurately express what they thought was important. <clears throat> now the two statements of faith are essentially identical. The principal difference between the two is, uh, is to be found in just one clause in each statement. That clause has to do with uh, the uh, attempt to define those people who must stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged according to the way they have used their lives. Number 27 at the end of the list that you have uh, gives you the clause from the Birmingham Amended Statement of Faith. I am now going to read to you the corresponding clause, Clause 25, from the Birmingham Unamended Statement of Faith, which we use. And by following along, you will be able to see wherein the difference lies. Thus reads the uh, Clause 25 of the Unamended Statement of Faith. And you can read it, uh, how it is worded from the Amended Statement. That at the appearing of Christ, prior to the establishment of the Kingdom, the responsible 
parenthesis, faithful and unfaithful, close parenthesis, dead and living of both classes will be summoned before the judgment seat to be judged according to their works and receive in body according to what they have done, whether it be good or bad. So you are enabled to see wherein the amended statement differs from that one. But as you probably know, great stress is laid upon this by the amended and their affiliates. <coughs> uh, they are not known as amended in the United Kingdom. They're called the Central Fellowship over there. And in Australia, they go by a still different name. However, they maintain fellowship relations with one another, but they do not maintain them with us. Any of you who have worked on a committee know that it is not an easy thing to do and to uh, work effectively. I'm sure you've all heard the, uh, uh, old, the saw that's becoming rather old now that a camel is a horse designed by a committee. <coughs> Your uh, original committee of seven members was uh, elected by the Ecclesias back in the winter of 1971-72. This was a reconstituted committee because we had had a continental committee before, uh, in fact, since 1955-56. to 56. And I have been associated with the reunion effort for over a quarter of a century. But uh, when we were approached by the uh, newly activated, that is newly in 1971, amended Continental Committee, we were invited to sit down and talk with them to see whether a reunion of the two bodies could be worked out. Now we have <clears throat> done everything that we could in order to conform to the pattern that they set up namely having seven members. Originally, uh, we had only uh, three members for our Continental Committee. And so we met in Chicago in beginning the Thanksgiving weekend of 1972, and uh, in, we had three three-day meetings in 1973, and so our uh, joint negotiations were broken off in October, uh, about the middle of October of 1973. However, there have been efforts, as I've said, by some to keep uh, the reunion effort going because I think you can understand that it is not a healthy thing for the body of Christ, if indeed we can appropriate that name to ourselves, should be divided. We all know that Jesus 
in his prayer to his father on the night of his betrayal, prayed that all of his followers might be one. We believe, of course, that uh, this unity for which Jesus prayed was to be a spiritual unity rather than a formal organizational uh, unity. And whether it would be possible to have an organizational unity would depend upon our holding to the same truth. So therefore your committee has had a responsibility. For one thing, we could not prejudge our amended counterparts. We had to assume that they were approaching us uh, for negotiations in good faith. We, uh, had we refused to meet with them, then they would have had uh, excellent opportunity to accuse us of dogmatism and being unwilling to seek unity. And so we have had to uh, try to work with them, reason with them, and so forth, remembering that as a committee we are responsible to our ecclesias and our members. We have had to uh, try to understand as best we could exactly what the most of our unamended membership believes because anyone who's had any experience uh, with people knows that uh, in any sizable group not everyone is going to have exactly the same opinion and understanding of things. Also we have had to uh, resist the temptation on the part of some to uh, jump to the idea that surely uh, uh, unity is a good thing like motherhood and apple pie. But also we have to believe, in fact both committees believe, that they are trying to obtain it on a scriptural basis. So that is the background <clears throat> and there of course are many details that could be supplied that we don't want to take the time uh, to uh, go into now. We had thought when we entered these negotiations in November of 1972 that the two main bodies, the amended and the unamended, believed practically exactly alike except on this one point which is differentiated by these two clauses on the responsible who shall appear before the judgment seat of Christ. <clears throat> but as we discussed, we came to find out that uh, we do not see all doctrines alike. And I am going to list the uh, topics that we shall be talking about tonight wherein there has been a difference of understanding as to scriptural teaching. First of all, the nature of man. Next, the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ and the significance of his sacrifice. Next, the nature 
of baptism, or rather, excuse me, the significance of baptism. Fourth, the significance of the everlasting covenant in God's plan of salvation. Fifth, what fellowship is and what it should entail. And sixth, this classical matter of dispute between the amended and the unamended, namely, who shall be responsible to the judgment seat of Christ. The policy uh, and attitude of the unamended throughout the decades, because this division has been going on for over 80 years now, has been that they would accept into fellowship the members of the amended body if they felt that they uh, could accept our, <coughs> our understanding of things. <coughs> However, uh, and we have considered what is going to happen to what they call the enlightened rejector, those defined by this amended clause that you have written there, was not a matter of sufficient definiteness and importance to make it a test of fellowship. However, the attitude of the amended has been that it is a first principle and should be made a test of fellowship. And they are still of that opinion. So now <coughs> we uh, want to consider these point by point in the order in which I gave them to you. Now you would think that if there were any doctrine on which all Christadelphians were in full agreement, it would be on the doctrine of the nature of man. Surely uh, both groups believe that man is mortal. Both groups believe that you cannot be saved except through belief and baptism. But the implications of this for us, thank you, Herb, uh, are different and leads to different understandings. So um, I want to thank Brother Norwood Shelton for his very able exposition of the fundamentals of uh, this matter of uh, justification and condemnation this morning, uh, which undergirds uh, what we're about to say. And some of the uh, quotations that we shall be giving, uh, he put on the screen this morning, and therefore it will be a repetition. But first of all, the fact that a division exists within the Christadelphian body not only is a tragic thing, it's tragic not merely because it violates a principle of unity, but also because it has put the truth, the precious truth, at a great disadvantage. First of all, as I'm sure some of you have experienced when you have tried to speak of the truth to people outside, and uh, they think this is wonderful, and then they find, lo and behold, there are two different breeds of Christadelphians. Uh, this immediately shakes their confidence. After all, if it's the truth, 
How can there be two varieties of truth? But also, human nature being what it is, and the readiness with which people engage in controversy, uh, this uh, <coughs> uh, serves to discredit the truth and the way of life in Christ to our own children. And some, as some of you know, in certain localities, the uh, disputes have become quite acrimonious. Therefore, the children would say, well, if this is the truth, I don't want any part of it. I'm sure you've encountered that sort of a situation. And so for our first uh, quotation here, uh, the Apostle Paul encountered this spirit in Corinth. As he says in 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, speaking of their disputes, for ye are yet carnal. Carnal, of course, means fleshly. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? And the answer is yes, because the true servants of God should not be walking as other men. This is an expression of the works of the flesh with which you are well familiar from what Paul writes in Galatians 5. This spirit of division. Now we believe uh, with regard to uh, what the scriptures tell us on this matter that we have talked about and as a British brother once pointed out in a famous exhortation that he gave, uh, the order that Paul gives here is the natural order in which things happen. He says, Where is, for, for, whereas there is among you envying, this is the starting point. One brother envies another of his prominence or his position or one sister envies another. That leads to strife, and ultimately, when strife becomes full-grown, it leads to division. As he says, there is no other order than that. But, but Paul tells us that we mustn't have this kind of an attitude, uh, we mustn't condemn our brother in this, from the standpoint of passing harsh judgment upon him. And he gives as his reason, as you can see, 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done whether it be good or bad. And this then should give us pause any time that we are tempted to indulge in uh, strife and controversy among ourselves. 
It's always easy to uh, conclude that I am spiritual and the other man is carnal. We have to examine ourselves, prove ourselves, whether we be truly in the faith. So now, regarding the nature of man, as Brother uh, Norwood showed this morning, Romans 5, uh, verses 12 to 14, and I don't think I need to enlarge upon that because he did such an excellent job of presenting it, uh, and I'm sure you're well familiar with it. We, we know how sin entered into the world and death as its entail, and how Adam, being the first of the natural creation, was a figure of the second Adam, or Jesus Christ, the first of the spiritual creation. We also know, as he pointed out, that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Brother Norwood pointed out wherein the gift lies. And he also pointed out how complete is the entail of Adam's transgression because death has power over human beings at any time of their lives, even before they are born, because it is not an uncommon occurrence for uh, babies to be born dead. And so we say uh, in this connection, whether one has committed personal transgressions has really nothing to do uh, so far as the general outworking of it is concerned whether or not we die. We are uh, natural human beings and death is the end of this life for all of us. But not necessarily the end of all life again as Brother Norwood pointed out this morning. So we will call uh, this uh, a sin principle. It is something that is born into us. It's resident in our nature. But not only does this sin principle that is born into our nature produce sins of transgression because None of us is able to resist temptation completely. In fact, God had to provide himself a special man who could do that. But also, as Brother Norwood pointed out, our Lord himself partook of this nature. He had in him what was mentioned as the law of sin and death. And it indeed did bruise his heel. We know that there's only one escape from this condition, uh, this power that is uh, resident in us, and that is what Paul called the law of the spirit of life. And the law of spirit of life does not have a physical effect on us as does the law of sin and death. It does not change us at all in our present condition, physically. 
but it definitely can change us mentally. And the most important thing is it can change our relationship with God. The only relationship in which there is hope for an escape from death. And we'll talk about this further on uh, when we talk about the nature of the everlasting covenant. We need to point out, again as Brother Norwood did, with regard to the way to the tree of life, uh, that the only hope of escape from death uh, is to conforming to God's plan and mode of salvation. We cannot save ourselves, and that plan involved the provision of this very special man, our Lord Jesus, who had the power, the spiritual and moral power in him to overcome sin. And we shall be discussing this presently in connection with his nature. But in addition to the fact that uh, death has claim on us even before we are born, it also, uh, and therefore, uh, we have no hope uh, outside of God's way. And uh, we are born into the world, alienated from the life of God, not only as the amended limited to ignorance and wicked works, but uh, we are not truly his children in as complete a sense as we can become. God cannot tolerate sin, as you see from the quotation here from Habakkuk, thou art of righteous than he. The only way that an enemy can be completely defeated is to defeat him on his own home ground because then he has no place to retire to and escape defeat. What is sin's home ground? It is a human body. And this kind of a body our Lord bore, and that is where he came to grips with sin and defeated it. But he couldn't have come to grips with it had he not had it there within him. And then we read that uh, well-known passage from Hebrews uh, number 7 uh, telling us that Jesus partook of exactly the same flesh and blood nature that we partake of and that in God's wisdom it was necessary that he do so so that he might overcome sin. An angel couldn't have done it because he would have had no connection with sin. And so uh, this hope for an escape from the entail of sin and death is God's precious gift to us. As uh, we can read uh, Paul's exultant words in his chapter on the resurrection, the redeemed, when they have been change to the spirit nature, the divine nature, can sing, O death, where is thy sting? 
O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength or power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it says, It is God that giveth us the victory. It doesn't mean that we uh, can coast through. We have our part to play. But if we play our part faithfully, God will then grant us the victory. And therefore we believe that Jesus had to bear sin's flesh. As the, uh, this difficult passage, difficult for some, in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he that is God made him Jesus to be sin for us. Not merely a sin offering. The Greek word hamartia means sin as well as sin offering. There's only the one word there. It says, Who knew no sin, not that he wasn't acquainted with it, but he never submitted to it, says that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And therefore, this is the only righteousness to which we can obtain. It is God's righteousness, which Paul so eloquently uh, describes in Romans chapters 3 and 4. Now we might add here that the amended committee experienced a difficulty in this concept and seeing it as we do, of the nature of our Lord and that of the nature of man. To them, the idea of Jesus bearing any form of defilement is repugnant. But they know as well as we do that Jesus came in the same nature as ours. So therefore, if they refuse to think that Jesus had this kind of a nature that is alienated from God, therefore we should not be alienated from God, which we believe, of course, is quite different from what the scriptures teach. And as justification, they uh, quote these next two references about Jesus. Um, and when I say they, I should pause here to mention in any group, there is particularly an unstructured group, and by the term unstructured it means a group that does not have uh, offices appointed to various people. The University of Minnesota has done quite a bit of research on this. They'll take a number of people, put them in a room around the table, tell them, go ahead, talk. And invariably within that group, one person emerges as the leader. And pretty soon all the rest are looking up to him. And those of us who uh, have been in these sessions uh, know very well that one man has emerged as the leader of the amended uh, committee. And therefore, uh, he spoke with the voice of authority and the others dared not challenge him. And he feels 
that because the angel said to Mary, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God, uh, there is uh, something almost miraculous and magic about the term holy. But again, as was pointed out this morning, the term holy means separate. Uh, Peter speaks of holy brethren, partakers of an heavenly calling, as brother might uh, discuss this morning. We, we can all be holy. In fact, God said to the children of Israel, Ye shall be holy, for I am holy. This didn't mean that they were not fleshly. It just meant that they should be separate from other peoples of the world. Holiness involves two forms of separation, separate from the world, separated to the service of God. And this is what we must all be. So now, and I must point out that when I entitle this What We Believe and Why, we are limiting it to these points of disagreement between the committees. Also, I must point out that this is a most sketchy treatment of the subject. Every one of these topics that we have mentioned could be uh, the topic of a whole lecture, and even then it wouldn't be properly covered. So if you think I'm skipping over this, uh, please forgive me, because I am. There just isn't time to uh, give it all the treatment we would like to. So now let us consider the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we've already mentioned the fact that he bore our nature, that it was necessary for him to bear our nature, that he might overcome sin. And uh, we believe that the significance of his sacrifice was, that is, his death upon the cross, was merely the crowning and final uh, overcoming and submission to God's requirement because his whole life had been a life of sacrifice. Therefore, we believe it is not dishonoring to Christ. In fact, if we claim that Christ was something so special that he didn't have to wrestle with sin as he did, instead of giving glory to him, we're robbing him of glory, are we not? The very fact that having our nature he was able to overcome it was one of the most uh, uh, was the greatest accomplishment ever made in the human race so uh, again as was pointed out in the Sunday school lesson this morning the way in which we become beneficiaries of this uh, great salvation which God has wrought through his son we must become identified with Christ. We of the unamended believe that baptism accomplishes more than the forgiveness of personal sins. And this is a difference between the two committees. And some of you have undoubtedly heard said uh, by certain people that baptism is for personal sins only. This we do not believe and cannot go along with. We believe 
that baptism does the following things. It marks the entrance of a believer into the gospel of Jesus Christ and an entrance into him. As it says in 1 Corinthians, in Christ shall all be made alive. That it marks the entrance into the everlasting covenant that we establish thereby a new relationship between God and ourselves so that we are no longer strangers and sojourners as Paul says in Ephesians 2 but fellow citizens and heirs with the saints it makes us children of God it makes us children of Abraham as you well know the, that quotation from Galatians 3 for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ and this is the necessary and fundamental thing now forgiveness of past sins does indeed go along with it but it doesn't mean that that's the end of our sinning as we should all know because we continue to commit sins but thereafter we must ask for forgiveness of sins from our Heavenly Father through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ our High Priest and our Mediator who sits at his right hand and uh, <clears throat> as John says in his first epistle if we confess our sins and he was writing to baptized believers he that is God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins forgive the, mis the typo there and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we say we have not sinned we make him a liar and his word is not in us therefore brethren and sisters we have continual need to seek God's forgiveness and to rejoice that he has been so merciful in providing a high priest to be our mediator in his presence we believe that the act of baptism is one of the only two ritual uh, commandments given to us in the scripture the other one is of course the breaking of bread at the memorial service our baptism is an outward act in which of course as far as the mechanics of it is are concerned uh, anyone could uh, choose to participate but it would not be a true and valid baptism without a very fundamental change having taken place in the mind of the baptismal candidate the external washing uh, is only ceremonial as Peter points out see reference 14 after having spoken of the ark he says the light figure whereunto even baptism doth now save us the ark saved the survivors of the antediluvian world 
But Peter adds parenthetically here, it is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. And the salvation is by the resurrection of the dead. So therefore, it is a required ritual, but God has stripped our religion almost entirely of ritual as compared with the religions of the world which dope upon ritual. Baptism is both a matter of memorial and of identification. It is a memorial of the fact that our Lord died and rose again. It is an act of identification with him. As Paul says here in Romans 6, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, there is the memorial, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. There is the identification too. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Therefore, it marks a complete change of life. And as we said, if there is not that determination to have that complete change of life, it is not a valid baptism. We might add finally that baptism is a symbolic death on our part in which we signify to others and to God and to Christ that we are determined to die to a former self-serving life, to rise from the water to walk in a new life, now to be dedicated to the service of God and of Christ for the remainder of our mortal existence. Baptism is a most meaningful symbol if it is undergone with a full understanding of its meaning. But obviously if not, then it has little meaning. So in view of the fact that the act of baptism marks a very significant and fundamental change in a person's thinking and mode of life, it is not a formality to be repeated that is over and over again, except in those cases where a believer finds, as Dr. Thomas did, that when he was immersed the first time or at a previous time, he did not really know the pure truth and now has received a fuller and more accurate knowledge of the fundamentals of the faith. So therefore, those previous immersions were not valid baptism. And because all that is comprehended in the act of baptism, it is essential that responsible Christadelphians take every possible precaution. And this means particularly for the elders of any ecclesia to try to determine whether the baptismal candidate understands clearly what is involved and the heavy responsibility for the rest of his life that it entails. 
baptism must never be thought of, as I'm afraid it is by some of our young people, as a mere formality by which one joins the Christadelphian body. So now we wish to uh, focus our attention upon the significance of the everlasting covenant. And the reason for pointing out this is that in the publications that have been coming out of Britain in recent years, the significance of the everlasting covenant has uh, almost slipped out of public view. And I might say that as a result of these reunion negotiations, some of the very leaders, and we have talked with the very top leaders of the Chris Delphin Magazine and Publishing Association, namely the chairman of that committee and the editor of the Chris Delphin Magazine on several occasions, they are waking up to this lack and are now going uh, to get out uh, a book uh, one of them is on the significance of the everlasting covenant. So if we say no good has come from the reunion effort, that's not an accurate statement because we have both learned a great deal. And I might add parenthetically, I'm sure that many of our young people feel that uh, there have been originally seven and now 18 old men on both sides arguing among themselves and trying to uh, divide up the Christadelphian world among themselves. Uh, this is not the case at all. We have worked very hard. We have spent liberally of our time, our energy, our money, and have suffered a great deal of frustration and heartache as a result of the efforts. But again, I say it has been worth it because we have learned much more about what is uh, current thinking among the amended body. And of course, we were quite well familiar with it among the uh, unamended. So now, since uh, Brother Norwood uh, talked somewhat about the everlasting covenant, uh, we'll do it very briefly here. <clears throat> and it should involve us far more personally than the hope of a reward because, as you know, the everlasting covenant is based upon the promises. As we quoted from Galatians, the, the Christ and are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promises. A covenant is a binding contract on two parties, the two parties who have entered into the covenant. And with regard to the everlasting covenant, one of those parties is God. And we know that God will be faithful to his covenant, as he has clearly said. The other part, the other party, is ourselves. And uh, we, whether we are faithful or not will depend on our individual efforts. So by choosing to enter into the everlasting covenant, we become, in fact, slaves. 
slaves of God and slaves of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says, reference 18, For he that is called in the Lord being a servant, that is a slave, in Paul's day, is the Lord's free man. Likewise also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants or slaves of men. And we should always bear about in our consciousness and consciences the fact that we are our Lord's bond servants. We know, of course, that uh, our very salvation is bound up in this, that it was through the blood of the everlasting covenant that even our Lord obtained his own salvation. As you can see in the quotation from Hebrews 13, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So therefore, if our Lord obtained his salvation through the everlasting covenant, is it reasonable for us to think that we can obtain it otherwise? In one of Zechariah's prophecies, which is uh, often quoted, uh, as for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. Turn to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto you, or unto thee. So therefore, we cannot minimize the importance of the everlasting covenant. It is a bedrock part of our belief and hope. So that we would say that any system of doctrine that claims to be Christadelphian but which ignores the central theme of the everlasting covenant is leaning far too close to mere Protestantism. In other words, what the uh, popular churches teach. And then, unfortunately, in recent years there has been too much tendency and particularly among the young people and some not so young who should know better to uh, take too emotional a, a view of this matter of unity within the body and to downplay let us say the importance of what the scriptures teach uh, doctrine is definitely important and we dare not uh, sacrifice it on the altar of a friendly relationship with other people. We certainly agree that the forgiveness of sins and the sacrifice of our Lord on the cross are central to God's plan of salvation, but Jesus would be the first of all uh, never to underestimate the importance of the covenant that he came to confirm in his own blood. And that confirmation was not merely incidental to the work of Jesus. As we say, it was the 
uh, consummation of his work. As we can read here uh, uh, from Romans 15, which uh, apparently I skipped. Pardon? 17. Okay, thank you. Right. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision. In other words, he was a Jew, had to be, for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As is written, For this cause will I confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. God confirmed his covenant with Abraham typically as you may remember uh, on the time when he caused a deep sleep to fall upon Abraham and the uh, smoking furnace and the burning lamp passed between the parts of the sacrificial offerings but that was only a typical confirmation it awaited the final confirmation in the uh, offering of Christ the one offering that could be effective. Now we want to pass to the next of our last topics, the concept of fellowship. Fellowship is basically a sharing. The Greek word in the New Testament is koinonia, which means exactly that, sharing. And so the fundamental question is, what is sharing? Do we just share a good feeling, uh, a friendship, and of belonging to a group? Unfortunately, this has become an all too prevalent concept in recent years. But even worse than this has been the use of the concept of fellowship in a negative sense. In other words, people have used what they call fellowship and its symbol, which is the breaking of bread, as a means of uh, excluding from the Lord's table and from their innermost counsels uh, those whom either they do not like or who in their own opinion are inferior to them spiritually. This is a negative use of fellowship. And here is where the statements of faith have been terribly and sadly misused. They have become the touchstone, let us say, by which we indicate whether we will have something to do with this person or that person or not. The concept of fellowship does not exclude a good and friendly feeling toward others. I'm sure we all share such here, and that is not inconsistent. Nor does it deny that we are members in the same organization. But these are what we might call the byproducts of fellowship, not its fundamental product. Scriptural fellowship involves a lot that is far deeper than either of these easily visible byproducts. For example, we find in Acts, uh, second chapter, in Peter's discourse on the day of Pentecost and Luke's comments afterward, 
and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine.